All of the newest episodes of Note to Self are now available on the Luminary Podcast app. It's free to download, and you can also listen to other podcasts from WNYC Studios like Radiolab, Two Dope Queens, Snap Judgment, Here's the Thing with Alec Baldwin, and others. Luminary Premium is the only place where you can enjoy the entire new season of Note to Self, plus new original podcasts you won't find anywhere else from Trevor Noah, Roxanne Gay, Guy Raz, Lena Dunham, and many more. And you can enjoy them ad-free. Start your free trial by going to luminary.link slash note to self or download the Luminary app for free. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Oh, walking in right now, Dan Tucker, producer of New Tech City, who had a rough weekend because his phone was stolen. And I don't think he planned this, despite the fact that this week's show is actually about phones and phone theft. Uh, Let me fix the chair a second. Dude, what the hell happened, man? Basically, I was coming back to my apartment. I had just gotten out of my car a block from my apartment, and a guy rode by on a bike, and he said, hey, do you have the time? And I actually had my phone out at the time, and I said, sure, it's 11.30. And uh, he kind of rode off a little bit. Then I noticed as I walked a few more steps, oh, there's two people on bikes. Then I got to the corner, and I said, oh, great, now there's four people on bikes. They came up onto the onto the sidewalk and just, like, came around me, put their hands in my pockets, uh, took my wallet, my phone. Just to describe you to our listeners, you're not, like, petite. You're, like, a tall guy. But I guess the fact that you got out of your car with your phone in hand, that made you a target. Yeah, and, you know, I was actually thinking, why do they ask if you have the time? They probably want you to pull your phone out. I mean, I had my phone out already, but you got to think that that's why they asked that. And then they were just like, see ya? Then they decided, hey, we want that this guy's hoodie that he's wearing. So they unzipped the hoodie that I was wearing off they liked my body. They clothes? Yeah, they, oh, God. And then they, I was kind of like, oh, okay, weird, weird feeling. Someone's taking a hoodie off of me. Um, so then they took that, and then they just, like, rode their bikes away. At that point, I was like, all right, time to go inside and cancel all my credit cards and figure out what to do with my phone and all that kind of stuff. What did you do with your phone? Well, I had an iPhone 4S, so I just signed into iCloud. Yeah. It looked like the phone was already offline, which means they probably turned it off. So I didn't actually have a password on it, like that four-digit password. So I just checked what you can do on iCloud, and I didn't know this, but it looks like you can put a passcode on it or a lock from iCloud. So I did that. The only other option is that you can erase the entire phone. And I was debating. I was thinking, like, well, if I erase it, I wonder if the police can even track it. If I don't erase it, what if they, like, hack into my email or whatever? I don't know how sophisticated they are. Uh-huh. So I was like, whatever. I'll, I'm, I'm going to get a new phone anyway. So I just erased the entire phone and called AT&T to get rid of my AT&T service so that they couldn't make any calls. Uh-huh. I don't know if they can resell it or how that works. Dan Tucker, producer for New Tech City. I am so glad you are okay. Well, thank you. It's New Tech City's phone show. I'm Anoush Samarodi, and today we're going to learn how to sell your phone on the black market if you wanted to. And we're also going to talk to one of the best known smartphone app inventors out there, Dennis Crowley of Foursquare. He's going to tell us how he was inspired by a woman many here in New York called the godmother of Silicon Alley. And yes, Silicon Alley had a godmother. I don't think I ever had a business conversation with Red. And I think if I did, she would have shut me down and said, hey, the thing you need to focus on is building stuff that people love and building stuff that you love building. But first, we're going to talk about some of the terrible things that can happen to your mobile phone by, you know, the bad guys. We asked someone who knows a little bit about this, AT&T's chief security officer, Ed Amoroso. 
And here's a little taste of some of the dangers out there. Well, spam is one thing. Someone trying to hijack your account for the purposes of, you know, getting free mobile service or something. Well, big one's denial of service. Just flooding your device or your system or your business so you can't work. There's something called a zero-day attack maybe you've heard of. Well, identity theft is the big one. Could be a competitor. Could be a couple of nasty high school kids. It could be... A nation state. They pop up and it says, hey, you know, click on this for, you know, better mortgage rates or whatever. And you go, huh, where'd that come Some from? hacker pushes a button somewhere and everybody's, you know, BlackBerry all of a sudden starts spewing garbage at some target and taking that target out. Okay, so there's that. Thanks, Ed Amoroso. So can you actually do anything to protect your phone? We're going to talk about that in a bit. But first, let's go back to that most low-tech phone crime of all, stealing the actual phone. Your chances of getting back a stolen phone are pretty slim. Now Apple has a new iPhone out that has a fingerprint scanner, so you don't need a password, you don't have to memorize codes. The idea is to make the device useless if it is stolen. But the black market for smartphones is pretty sophisticated. That's what New Tech City's Ilya Meritz found out when he went to try and sell his friend's iPhone 4. To call smartphone-related crime an epidemic is not an exaggeration. By one estimate, more than 4,000 phones are stolen every day in the United States. Last year, the crime rate in New York City rose after years of declines. The reason? 15,000 people reported a stolen phone. People like Jessica Ingle. So it's like a really crowded bar and I didn't even notice it. They must have like unzipped the bag and they must be experienced or something. The weird thing, Ingle says, is the thief actually left her wallet in her handbag. Only the phone was missing. It was never found. It has been frustrating. Pat Timlin is a former deputy commissioner in the New York City Police Department. Officers, he says, are doing their best to fight crime, but the odds are against them. Smartphones are easy to grab, and he says they're almost as liquid as cash. In a report for the NYPD, Timlin found stolen phones changing hands all over the city. We saw bodegas, we saw local laundromats, and we saw back alley sales. But no one has a complete picture of the size or scope of this black market. So I'm sitting in my car now with an iPhone 4 that I borrowed from my uh, coworker. Uh, this was her old phone. She doesn't use it anymore, and she actually wiped it. I spent a day driving around Brooklyn, hitting up places that advertise on Craigslist, saying, we buy used iPhones. Okay, thanks. He said he's going to call back in a minute. Over the phone, a buyer named John agrees to meet me on the street in Brownsville, Brooklyn. I feel a little nervous about this, I have to say. Uh, Let's see what happens. John spots me right away. We shake hands and he takes me inside a beauty parlor where women sit underneath hair dryers. They hardly look up from their magazines as John introduces me to his business partner. This guy looks the phone over, flicks through several screens and says, how much do you want for it? I don't sell it. Okay, so I'll just say it. It didn't seem to me like these guys were too concerned out of any ethical standpoint where the phone came from. They also seemed pretty confident, I have to say, after looking over a phone that had been wiped, uh, that they would be able to sell it on no problem. In a shop like this one, an individual thief could easily turn a stolen phone into cash. But smartphone crimes can be a lot more sophisticated than that. Uh, Good morning, everybody. Thank you for joining us here today. In 2011, Manhattan District Attorney Cyrus Vance announced the arrests of 27 people in a crime ring directed from inside Rikers Island. Members of this group weren't stealing phones. They were using stolen identities to manufacture fake credit cards and buy over a million dollars in gear. Those shoppers fanned out across the country. 
purchasing fraudulently obtained electronic goods from Apple stores in particular. Then, many of the iPhones and iPads were sold online through eBay. Two defendants are still at large. The plots coming to light today are complex and increasingly global. Hundreds of smartphones bought and sold in what prosecutors are calling an international scheme that connects the homeless with buyers in Hong Kong. KCRA-TV in Sacramento. In March, the California Attorney General announced the arrests of two individuals. They allegedly paid homeless people to buy discounted phones on a two-year contract. Then they shipped the devices in bulk to Hong Kong, where phones can sell for $2,000 each, 10 times as much as in the States. I hate the guys who do this type of stuff. Mark Rogers is with the online security firm Lookout. He's also a hacker who frequents forums where criminals exchange information. Fraudsters and thieves, Rogers says, are good at spotting an opportunity. When some European countries created blacklists where users could report stolen phones and block them from being used again on other networks... The criminals quickly realized that if you completely sidestep the blacklist by shipping the devices to foreign countries that don't participate in any programs like this, then you can probably sell the devices for close to a retail price. Law enforcement tends to focus on thefts on the street and in subways. But Rogers believes that will only end when the black market itself is squeezed. So things that make it harder for the guys to sell the phones once they've stolen them, things that make it easier for them to get caught, and things that drive down the value of the devices when they do steal them. Rogers says a kill switch, which could turn a phone into a useless brick, is a good start. It would be even better if phone owners had to prove their identity before resetting or reselling the phone. Ultimately, it would be fantastic if we could get it set up so that once a device is stolen, the only value there is from the parts. Police will be on high alert when the new iPhone goes on sale. Since the first iPhone debuted six years ago, they've learned that every new Apple product comes with a spike in street crime. For WNYC, I'm Ilya Meritz. Okay, and Ilya is back from the black market, sitting in the studio with me now. I'm glad you're safe. Uh, Yeah. So, Ilya, what would we need to do to protect a phone? What people in the security field say is that what you actually want is a cluster of different kinds of technologies Mm -hmm. that might undermine the value of the phone on the black market. So maybe it's a kill switch. Maybe it's uh, what they call persistent user credentials, where only the original purchaser can unlock the phone, wipe the phone, install new hardware on the phone. A variety of different measures taken together might actually make that difference. I'm glad you brought that up. And in the spirit of that, Ilya Meritz, I told you to come into the studio with your phone. I have it here. The kill switch is not here yet, but I do have a list on my computer, courtesy of the Huffington Post, of all the different things that you should, steps that you can take to basically protect your phone. And now, Ilya... I challenge you to a cell phone safety duel. You're on. Okay, my weapon is the iPhone 4S. Yours? Samsung Galaxy S3. Okay, here we go. Number one, do you have your carrier and account information handy if your phone was stolen? Yes. You do? Yeah. Do I? AT&T, well, it's at home. I think it's on paper in my my desk. Okay. All right. So number two, have you got a passcode set up on your phone? Yes. Okay. Me too. Good. Number three, have you put a remote protection app on your phone? So with iPhone, it's the Find My iPhone app, which I do have installed. No. Nothing? Nothing. Do you know about them? 
I've heard about I, – I, you know, I of always – Of course you do. You just reported on this and yet here – I mean, see, this is what I find so interesting, right? Two people who are so interested in like the technology and people stealing them and what happens and yet – I should know better. I should be protecting myself better, no? You know what I did when the one thing the really the one thing that I did when I got this phone, it was mailed to me and it had a little sticker that included the serial number and I was like, "Oh." Oh, wait. I think that is um yes, number 4 actually. Save your phone's unique ID. Do you have that still? Yeah, so I pasted that inside my my paper day planner. So for the year 2013. So I know that that's where you still have the unique paper. ID is. Yeah. That's good. So you have the unique ID. I have I assume I still have the box cuz I just threw it into another that box. That sounds like a safe assumption. Okay, finally, number 5, schedule regular backups. They recommend backing up once a month, between once a month and once a week. Never. Never? But you're on the cloud, right? So isn't it backing it up itself? Like I have iCloud. So I think that I, that's all I have to do, right? I mean, what are you trying to save? Like your contacts? Yeah, like my contacts, my calendar, all my apps that I've bought, all of that stuff. I don't know. It doesn't seem like a catastrophe. I, I don't have anything, and it doesn't seem to me like it would be a catastrophe if, if no? I lost. I don't have any music on there. Half my contacts I don't have because I, I only got this phone a few wait, months wait, ago. Ilya, we should point out exactly that you only got this phone a few months ago. And in fact, you are new to the whole smartphone world. I actually carry three phones with wait, me. You have them all here? Uh, I only have two of them with me. Oh, only two. Who, yeah. who, who are the lucky two that made it into the studio? Uh, the, the, the BlackBerry and, uh, and the Samsung. So let's tally it up. You do have a carrier and, and the account information handy. You do have a passcode. You do not have a remote protection app. But you do have the ID, but you don't back up. You get three out of five, Ilya. Hey, sixty percent. Is that a passing grade? I think maybe. Do, just... do I beat you? I do back up because of iCloud. I think I got three out of five as well. So High I'd, five. I think we get like a C plus or something, which is kind of lame. Ilya, thank you so much. Thank you, Manoush. The tech world lost someone very important last month. An 88-year-old woman named Red Burns. That you provided a frame in which people could develop their ideas that all kinds of interesting things would happen, and indeed they did. Red Burns was unofficially known as the godmother of Silicon Alley. Because of all the tech whiz kids who came out of her interactive telecommunications program at New York University, which she started in 1979. As one graduate, entrepreneur Evan Radowski put it, Red's program seemed like a collection of technologically enabled misfits, free spirits, and nonconformists hiding out in a small downtown loft. We were building stuff for phones that I think at the time felt like products in an art environment. One of those free spirits, and perhaps the school's best-known graduate, is Dennis Crowley. I'm Dennis Crowley. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Foursquare. I was a student there from 2002 to 2004. After graduating, Dennis returned to teach a class at Redburn's Invitation. She was a huge personality, brash and in-your-face and very direct and demanded a lot. And as you probably guessed, his class was on how to build things for mobile phones. By then, Crowley had turned his graduate school project into a company called Dodgeball, and he sold it to Google for millions. In 2009, he started his next social networking app, Foursquare, which now claims to have 25 million users. I'd rather talk about Red as opposed to, like, my stuff. Crowley gives Red Burns and her interactive telecommunications program, or ITP as the cool kids call it, he gives them credit for getting him out of his post-dot-com crash slump. 
art school was the last place that I expected to end up, but uh, at the time I was unemployed and I was thinking about applying to business schools and I was completely uninspired by the business school application process. And a friend of mine, in my lowest moments of being unemployed and struggling about what to do next, invited me to come to the ITP winter show. And uh, I was like, okay, I'm not doing anything because I didn't have a job at the time. So I'm like, of course I'd love to come to this, this show. We went up to the fourth floor, and the moment the elevator opened, the first project I saw was you know, someone was making these three robots. They were just robots that would follow each other for the sake of following each other. And I was like, what are you working on here? And what, and what is this? And what is it supposed to do? And it's like, I know, I just wanted to build this and see what it did. And I was like, this is exactly where I need to be. The This was a program evenly split between men and women, a rarity still in tech, and also evenly split between those who can code and those who haven't a clue. But all of them are inspired by technology, says Crowley. Some people want to make musical instruments. Some of them want to make robots that just follow other robots around. Some of us are building software for phones. Some of us are making interactive art you know, um, displays and sculptures and exhibitions. This mix of art, technology, and social change was a very personal interest of Burns. In the 1970s, after working in film and TV, she became a fan of the brand new, at the time, Sony Portapack camera, the first portable video camera. She looked for ways of using video to help communities. For one early project, she helped a Washington Heights neighborhood film a broken stoplight, forcing City Hall to finally put in a new one. And this was the beginning of Burns's work for public access to cable television. It might seem quaint now that we can all film everything on our phones, but it was truly groundbreaking at the time. I would say that, you know, she was like a, a usability expert and an experience expert. She could look at something that you were you were making for people to use, and she could look at you know something that you made to express yourself, and she could look at both of those things, and give you feedback on you know is this working? What will people ask? What will people think? Like how can you think about this differently? How can you push yourself to make this a little bit better, a little bit different, or a little bit more clear? And I, I don't think I've seen that in um, well, I've never seen that in anyone else. I can do it in the way that she was able to do. Like the New York tech scene, Crowley says, early on, Red Burns created a place for people looking to intersect art with technology. It doesn't matter if it's a piece of art that hangs on the wall or if it doesn't matter if it's, you know, something that you built that, you know, for a phone that's designed to help you find your friends. Crowley happens to have made millions off of his art. And there's a lot of speculation right now about where his current company, Foursquare, is headed. Red would not have cared, he says. I don't think I ever had a business conversation with Red. And I think if I did, she would have shut me down and said, hey, the thing you need to focus on is building stuff that people love and building stuff that you love building. Two years ago, Dennis Crowley presented his mentor with a prize for lifetime achievement at the Webby Awards. I'm proud to present a 2011 Webby Special Achievement Award to Red Burns. To follow Dennis Crowley was my life's dream. But he still remembers being chastised by her just 10 years ago. There was a student listserv, and, you know, all the students would, would talk and gossip and, you know, buy and sell and trade things on this, on this email list. And at one point, a thread emerged about, like, Red Burns. Is her real name really Red? <laughs> what, what could it be? And there was a thread around it. And then someone, a mysterious character, emerged on the student listserv and wrote back to everyone, like, stop it. This thread will stop right now. (laughs) Like, okay, there we go. Red Burns, by the way, was born Goldie Guinness in 1925 to Russian immigrants in Ottawa. 
Her nickname came from her red hair. Her second husband was Lloyd Burns. I'm Anoush Samarodi. Thanks for listening to New Tech City.